Well, good morning. If you have your outline, please go ahead and get it. Our nation and each one of us stands at a crossroad. As you know, we're going through some tough economic times. And depending on what economist you listen to, you get a different forecast. Some economists are saying over the next six or seven months, things are going to turn around and start to get better, and they'll point to the Dow Jones closing at above 10,000 points last week. Other economists who base their forecast on the housing market are saying that things may not really get turned around until late next year or even into early 2011. So we are either in for an extended recession or we're going to have a revival. And it is my prayer that God is going to use this difficult time in order to help to bring about a revival in this country and in our personal lives, in our national life. So we want to finish our series, What Will Heal America? And the main passage we're looking at is Second Chronicles 7.14. I received emails from several of you stating that uh, people in your subdivision have a little sign out in their yard with this scripture on it, Second Corinthians seven or Second Chronicles seven fourteen. Here's what it says: If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. We talked about this passage last week. There are four conditions and three promises. If we will humble ourselves and pray and seek God and turn from our wicked ways, then He will hear from heaven, forgive our sins, and heal our land. And there's no doubt that America needs healing right now. We need healing in our economy, in our businesses, in our churches, in our homes, in our careers, in our marriages, in our relationships, in our hearts. Deuteronomy 30. If you return to the Lord your God and you and your children begin wholeheartedly to obey all the commands I have given you today, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes. That's an amazing promise that God made to His people. That last phrase, the Lord your God will restore your fortunes. That was said to a nation of people living in a wilderness with no geographic boundaries. As we look at the Bible, both the Old Testament and New, there are six steps that are necessary for personal and national revival. The truth is, whatever is dying in your life right now needs to be revived. And that word means to bring to life again. It may be a marriage. It may be your career. It may be your finances. It may be your spiritual life but all of us on a personal and on a national, national level 
need revival. So here's the first step if it's going to happen. Number one, we must reconnect with God. If there's going to be a revival on a personal level or a national level, the very first step is we have to reconnect with God. As you know, America has been drifting away from God for several generations, and as a result, we have become disconnected. So how do we get reconnected to Him? Well, a couple of things. Number one, we are going to have to recognize that God is God and we're not. God is God and you're not. One of the keys to stress reduction is to remind yourself that you are not God. One of the reasons why we get disconnected is because we start thinking we're God. I'm in charge on a personal level and on a national level. And the truth is, we're not. In Deuteronomy 6.4, says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now what that means is, we don't serve a bunch of gods. There is only one God who is our true and living Lord, and this is the first thing that we're going to have to recognize personally and nationally if we're going to reconnect with the Lord. There is one. Second thing, remember that God wants to have a relationship with you. He made you in order to love you, and He wants you to love Him back. Now we know that in our minds, we know that. But what happens is we start thinking about all of the bad stuff that we've done, and we start concluding that God is not interested in me. Listen, God is not mad at you. He's mad about you. And it doesn't matter what you've done or how long you've done it. He wants you back. This is Psalm 145. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. The Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all He has made. It is important for us to understand that God is rich in love and has compassion on all that He has made. Connecting with God is the ultimate answer to every problem you have and every predicament that you're in. Isaiah 30, verse 15. The Sovereign Lord, the Holy One of Israel says, Only in returning to Me and waiting for Me will you be saved. In quietness and confidence is your strength but you would have none of it. It's only in returning to the Lord and waiting on Him that your marriage can be saved, that your finances can be saved, that the economy can be saved, ultimately that the nation can be saved. So my question to you is this, what is first place in your life right now? 
Are you connected to God right now? If I had a little chart and some things you could circle, what would you circle? A lot, a little, you're not sure. If you're not sure, ask yourself this question. What is first in my life right now? Money? Popularity? Relationship? We have to reconnect with God if we expect Him to save us from the situation that we're in. And so the first step to personal revival and national revival is we're going to have to get reconnected with the Lord. Second step is we need to rejoice in His grace. Rejoice in God's grace. Now what exactly does that mean? That, that Okay, that's kind of like a preacher point, right? Yeah, hey, we need to rejoice in the grace of God. Yeah, rejoice in the grace of God. What does that mean? As I'm using it, here's what I mean by it with this particular point. We have to have gratitude in tough times. We have to be grateful in tough times. We have to learn to celebrate God no matter what. Now, this is what the Apostle Paul said from prison. Now, if I were in prison, I probably wouldn't be just in this state of mind, but here's what he said. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. So I have some questions. Does that mean in a recession? Yes or no? Does that mean when you get laid off? Does it mean when you go through a breakup? See, I think God is looking down on our nation right now and He's saying, is everybody down there just complaining about the recession that they're in? Is anybody counting their blessings for what I have done? Why is rejoicing so important to the revival of our personal lives and our nation? Here's the reason. Gratitude is the ultimate proof that you trust God. Gratitude, thankfulness in tough times is the ultimate proof that you are putting your trust in God. I'm going to be grateful and I'm going to celebrate what I can right in the middle of these tough times. In the Old Testament, there was a prophet by the name of Habakkuk. And I know you've probably all just been reading his book. Oh, Habakkuk, I just finished that book. And he has this book named after him. It's it's three chapters. It's an incredible book. Habakkuk's country wasn't doing very well. He had a bunch of questions, and so he goes and he asks God about them. and, And God gives Habakkuk the answers, but Habakkuk isn't satisfied with the answers that God gives. And so he comes to the end of his book. He doesn't feel like his questions have been answered to his satisfaction. So here's what he says. Though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vines, Though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, 
Though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. Would you circle the two occurrences of the words, I will, I think they're underlined, go ahead and circle them. I will is an act of the will. It is a choice to rejoice that is not based on circumstances. In tough times, God wants us to focus on the good, not the bad. He wants us to focus on what's left, not what's lost. He wants us to focus on the blessing, not the burden. He wants us to focus on the potential, not the problem. In 1 Thessalonians 5.18, it says, Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Notice that it says, Give thanks in all circumstances. Would you circle the word in? It's a very important preposition. It does not say, Give thanks for all circumstances. Don't start thanking God for cancer. Don't start thanking Him that you got laid off. Don't start thanking Him that some loved one died. You thank Him that He's in charge and that He loves you and that He's going to help you through difficult times. That is God's will for you. Is that what it says? See, people ask me all the time, what is God's will for me? I'm not saying this is all of His will, but at least it's an important part of it because it says, give thanks in all circumstances for this is God's will for you in Jesus Christ. This is God's will for you and me. Is that we can celebrate the Lord in the middle of difficult circumstances. Romans 5 says this, We rejoice in our trouble because we know that these troubles produce patience. And patience produces character. And character produces hope. And this hope will never disappoint us because God has poured out His love to fill our hearts. So why do we rejoice regardless of the problems that we're going through? Why are we here today rejoicing and celebrating the Lord in our lives? Number one, because we have hope. And number two, because we know that the Lord loves us. And our hope is not based on circumstances. Amen? Our hope is not based on government policy. Amen? Our hope is not based on the stimulus package. At least not our eternal hope. Our hope is based on the fact that God loves us. So that's why we rejoice in His grace. And that's why celebrating the Lord is a very important step to personal and national revival. And then the third step is we must request help for our leaders. We must request help for our leaders. For every one of our leaders, we want to pray for three things. 
Now, these are not in your outline because I just read them in an article last Thursday. And we want to pray these things for President Obama, Vice President Biden, Speaker of the House Pelosi, Senate Majority Leader Reid. These are four people who are in four of the most powerful jobs in the world. Pray that God will give them, number one, wisdom to lead us with humility, courage to lead us with integrity, and compassion to lead us with generosity. Now these three things, wisdom to lead us with humility, courage to lead us with integrity, compassion to lead us with generosity. These are the three antidotes to the three most common traps of leadership. Pride, dishonesty, and selfishness. We need to be praying for others. The prophet Samuel was giving a farewell speech to his people. And this is what he said, 1 Samuel 12, 25. As for me, Far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by failing to pray for you. So why should we take the time to pray for our leaders? I have enough problems of my own that I need to be praying about. Why stop and pray for the leadership of America? Three reasons. Let's read the passage first and then we'll dig the three reasons out of it. I urge first of all that request prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for kings and those in authority. That we may lead, live peaceful and quiet lives in godliness and holiness. This is good, and it pleases God our Savior, who wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. The first reason why we're praying for our leadership it says, is that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in godliness and holiness. When our leaders are doing their job and watching out for us and, and our security, it creates the atmosphere where we can live peaceful lives. Where we can have the, the house in the quiet subdivision. And God's not opposed to us having those things. Second reason. This is good and it pleases God our Savior. God is pleased when you pray for your leaders. That makes Him very happy. Third reason is God wants all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Your prayers promote evangelism and make it easier for God's Word to be shared. At this time, Randy Baker is going to be coming up and he is going to be leading us in a prayer on behalf of the leadership of America. Randy. Let's pray. Father, the desire of our hearts here this morning is that we align our lives with you. 
The Bible says there is no government put in place without your permission and without your sovereignty. As your children, Father, we join our voices and our minds and our hearts for our nation's leaders. We are praying every way we know how for President Obama, Vice President Biden, the Cabinet, the House, the Senate, and the Supreme Court. Father, we pray for their families. Lord, we pray for all of our leaders in government. May their thinking be enlightened by your wisdom so the thoughts and actions of our leaders in Washington will direct our country on a path where we can live in godliness and holiness. May we be a nation that shows the love and compassion of Christ so that others in the world will see you through our actions. Each time we see our president on TV, in the newspapers, on the internet, in magazines, may that be our divine reminder as a congregation to pray for our leaders. Father, may we pray for our leaders like we would want them to pray for us. We request your help. We ask for your sovereignty and blessings to be on us and in our leaders. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we need to pray for our leaders. And then step four is we must repent of our self-centeredness. We must repent of our self-centeredness. Why? Why is this so important? Because it is at the root of every single one of your problems and the problems in this nation. At the top of the outline, there is a book that I came across a few months ago. It's by a fella, his name is G.K. Chesterton. And the book is entitled, What's Wrong with the World? Now, don't run out and buy it. It was originally published around 1908, 1909, and the guy lived in England. And so there's a lot of British English in the book that's kind of hard to follow. But the basic principles of the book are very good, and it's almost like he's giving a description of 21st century America. So the book is What is Wrong with the World? I'm going to summarize the book for you in two words. I am. Did you all get that? What's wrong with the world? I am. At the root of the recession are spiritual problems. Well, let, let me put it very plain. The reason why we are in a recession is because of spiritual problems. Now I'm going to tell you what they are. Greed. The inability for most Americans to wait for something. And buying things we don't need with money that we don't have. Now, up until recently, Mortgage lenders and credit card companies have made it very easy for us to satisfy every single need instantly. We won't worry about it until next month. What has happened is we have built a house of cards and now the house has come crashing down on us. The answer to personal debt and national debt is to apply biblical principles on saving, thriftiness, and not presuming about the future. Those are spiritual issues. So in November, I'm going to be doing a series on giving and stewardship. 
And the basis of my messages are going to be the, the Bible study program, the Crown Financial Study. We have several people here who are qualified to teach it and who have taught the course several times. It is the most biblically centered program I know when it comes to our relationship to money. And the principles presented are principles that can be applied on a national level. We must repent of our self-centeredness because if we don't, this is what is going to happen. Galatians 5. When you follow the desires of your sinful nature, that would be self-centeredness, right? Your lives will produce these evil results. Sexual immorality, impure thoughts, eagerness for lustful pleasure, idolatry, participation in demoniac activities, hostility, Quarreling, jealousy, outburst of anger, selfish ambition, divisions. Now this next one is my favorite. This is just my favorite. The feeling that everyone is wrong except those in your own little group. Drunkenness, wild parties. Okay, we've at Port City maybe have had a few of those. And other kinds of sin. Let me tell you again, as I have before, that anyone living that sort of life will not inherit the kingdom of God. And so I'm, I'm reading over this last night, and all of a sudden it occurred to me, this is the TV schedule for tonight. In America, we call it entertainment. I would like to lead us in a prayer of confession. And I'm going to ask that if you would, if you'll just go ahead and stand. Let's see. I will, excuse me. I had another person lined up to do it, but they weren't able to be here. If you'll bow with me, please. Father, you have told us in your holy word, the Bible, to search and try our ways and to turn our lives back to you. And so we stand before you, before you as individuals, as families, as a congregation, as a gathering of Americans. We come with humble hearts. We are very, very painly, painfully aware of our sin and shortcomings. We have trampled on your grace and we have taken for granted your mercy and forgiveness. Now, Lord, you know what we're made of. You know the content of our character. You know that if we are left to ourselves, our hearts will turn to evil. And so we willingly admit that. We willingly confess and plead guilty in thought and in deed to sexual immorality, impure thoughts, drunkenness, Greed, idolatry, jealousy, gossip, envy. We have trampled nearly to death the sanctity of marriage. We have sinned against you and we have done evil in your sight. And so you are right and justified 
when you judge and discipline us. But we also know that you are full of compassion and mercy. And that you have promised that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so, Father, just as we have confessed, we ask you to forgive us, heal us, restore to us the joy of our salvation, renew a steadfast spirit within us, transform us by renewing our minds so that we can think the way you think. We can value things that you value. Give us hearts that are right and true and noble. Help us, Lord, to live lives that are pleasing to you and that reflect the character of Christ. These things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So we need to repent of our self-centeredness. And then the fifth step is we must learn to respect each other. We must respect each other. As our nation becomes more and more diverse, people are becoming more and more uncivil and rude and uncaring. We are living in a culture of put-downs. Put down other people. And because of that, there are a lot of people who are just starving to be treated with respect. In 1 Peter 2.17, it says, Show respect for all people. Love the brothers and sisters of God's family. Respect God. Honor the King. So why are we told to show respect for all people? Because God never made a person that He did not love or Jesus did not die for. Every human being has been created in the image of God and deserves at least some level of respect. And then number six, we need to be moving to six. We must revere Jesus' name. If there's going to be a personal revival, a national revival, we have to have reverence for the name of God, the name of Jesus. It is the most powerful name in all of the world. Now, how do we know that? We know it a couple of ways. Number one, we know it by physical observation. We know it by just looking at the world around us. I did a little bit of research and discovered that God is the only name that is used worldwide as profanity. They don't say, Buddha darn it. They don't say, Mohammed darn it. In some countries, Jesus' name is outlawed. You can be arrested, beaten, whipped, thrown in jail, killed over the name. So, I know it's the most powerful name in all of the world. Another reason is because Jesus is the key to answered prayer. The name of Jesus is the key to answered prayer. This is John 14, 14. You may ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. 
This is why we pray in Jesus' name. It's not some kind of an an optional add-on. It's not like in the CB world, over and out and 10-4, good buddy, roll on down the road. The reason why we're praying in Jesus' name is because we are coming to God based on what Jesus has done. We're saying, Lord, take a look at what your son did. Now, take a look at the request that I am making to you based on what he did. Acts 4.12 Salvation is found in no one else. And there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. So there are not five saviors. There's not 15 saviors. There's not 500 saviors. There is one. If you want to go where God lives in heaven when you die, then you have to accept and live by His standard. So what it really comes down to are two choices. Number one, You can acknowledge the name of Jesus humbly now in love and be forgiven and go to heaven when you die. Or, you can choose to do nothing and humbly acknowledge His name in regret and judgment later. Those are the two choices before each one of us. God raised him to the highest place, according to Philippians 2. God made his name greater than every other name, so that every knee will bow to the name of Jesus, everyone in heaven, on earth, under the earth, and everyone will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and bring glory to God the Father. One day, everyone will will kneel and acknowledge Jesus as Lord, either in regret or in love. One day, Madonna is going to kneel and say, Jesus is Lord. I don't know if she's, I don't know her personal life. One day, Hitler and Stalin and Lenin and Marx will say, Jesus is Lord. One day, presidents Carter, Bush, Clinton, Bush again, Obama will say, Jesus is Lord. One day, Hugh Hefner will bow and say, Jesus is Lord. One day, Richard Dawkins, who is a world-renowned atheist and all of his atheist friends, will kneel and say, Jesus is Lord. The problem for many is that the acknowledgement is going to be in judgment because they turned away in pride and rejected the only one who could save them. That's not too late for you or me. You know how I know that? Because you're breathing. Right now, you're taking in oxygen and letting out whatever we let out, CO2 or whatever it is. As long as we are breathing, 
there is hope. So you can make that choice now. We want to encourage you to choose Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You say, I believe in Jesus. Great. Now, prove it by allowing me or someone else whom you choose to baptize you, immerse you in water for the forgiveness of your sins. If you need our prayers, we want to pray for you. We can intercede for you. If you want us to pray for you privately, we, we can do that too. You and I have choices. There are millions and millions of people who have gone on before us who now no longer have a choice. They made their choice. What is your choice going to be? If you have a need, please let us know while we stand and sing.